just about a minute. Just making sure the live stream is ready. You can just prepare your hearts in prayer. Um, and then we'll begin. Brothers and sisters, it is April 17th, 2022. This just happens to be our Easter Sunday. Uh, so welcome to our Easter Sunday service with Sheepgate Fellowship. All of you online, thank you for joining us as well. We would prefer, of course, to see you in person, uh, but we appreciate your attendance regardless. Those of you here, welcome uh, into the house of the Lord, to the body of Christ, as we celebrate and remember and honor Christ on the day that he rose from the grave. Uh, let's begin with a call to worship. Our mission statement at our church, of course, uh, is that we exist to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to love God, to love neighbor, to worship God, and to enjoy Him forever. This is our mandate. This is our reason as a church and the function for which we desire to uh, operate and to fulfill. Uh, as we go into a time of praise, uh, I want to just call you into worship as we, of course, this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, so I want to call you into worship with Matthew 28. And no, it is not the Great Commission, but I want to read you the first 10 verses of that chapter. Uh, and it reads like this. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there... They will see me. Amen. In this text, we are reminded of the historical event of Christ's resurrection. Each gospel accounts for this resurrection in its own unique perspective. Uh, and in the Matthew context, we see this emphasis on the empty tomb, the rising of Christ, and of course, a Christ that awaits us to greet us again. Um, I love how they ran both with fear and great joy. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for us as the community of Christ and as followers of Jesus, that our lives would be, as Paul describes, a race that we run with both great fear and great joy in knowing the risen Christ. Let's take a moment to pray and reflect on uh, this particular uh, text and the resurrection of Christ. I'll take a moment to silently, privately, reflect and remember this and in gratitude come before the Lord. So let's just take a moment for that and then we'll go into a time of uh, just reading our catechism. Question 53 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, Which is the third commandment? The answer to this question is the third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I've heard this before, I'm sure. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. What a healthy reminder for the church today in light of the resurrection of Christ, the hinge of our faith, of course, 
that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. With that in mind, let's now go into time of prayer as I open for us, and then we'll, time, uh, we'll go into time of song. Let's pray. God, we thank you this day as we remember the risen Christ, as we are reminded as we are so desperately in need of reminder each and every day and moment of our life of the reality of a risen Christ, a Christ who has conquered death, who has conquered sin, and in his resurrection precursors our own resurrection, one day glorified to be with you forever. We ask, O Lord, that this day, that this would not just be memory that is just restored into our minds, but memory restored to our hearts, that we who were once blind, blind to be able to see the truth, are now able to see the truth and rejoice in that. We run this race, O Lord, both in great fear, because there is mystery to our future, but with joy, because the end is certain. We thank you, O Lord, and we sing these songs in your name, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's go into a time of song. We have a bunch of children here today, and the cam's going to be here for a while, so you might hear some children in the background. Before we go into this song, uh, I want to remind you of what it says. Each verse of this song has been particularly and specifically written to talk about Christ's coming, verse 1, Christ's uh, life here, like his entity, like as both truly man and truly God, verse 2, his death his, and his resurrection, right? Or resurrection in, in verse 3, and then this wonderful conquering of sin and death in verse 4 so we're gonna like sing and build up to these final two verses but just be in remembrance uh, and as this song teaches us to come behold this wonderful wonderful thing let's sing together
afternoon on this Sunday. Um, like any other Sunday, we remember, of course, Christ, his coming, his death, his re- resurrection, and his coming again. But on this particular Sunday, what we call Easter, there is, of course, uh, a greater emphasis on your rising from the grave. And so, Father, we ask that this truth would be once again um, taught to our hearts that are, that are so prone to wander from this truth and live so selfishly We ask, O Lord, that our lives would be turned, that our desires would be shifted, that our eyes would be focused on Christ. We thank you. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from
welcome you guys once again, all of you who are here uh, joining with us on this wonderful Easter Sunday. Easter, of course, is a day where many uh, Christians uh, across denominations and traditions gather, and you know, even nominal Christians and just nominal people who are familiar to some degree uh, with the story of Christ and with church tradition uh, will choose to go to church probably two days a year. Uh, Easter and then Christmas, right? That seems to be sort of the two days that most people go. Um, but of course, as true, wonderful, genuine believers, we go to church every day and we reflect on these things. Today is just another reminder of a truth that we already know, but we are so in need of being reminded of. Let's turn to John chapter 11. I told you last week that I would stick to our First Corinthians series, but I decided it is Easter. We might have some guests, and I thought it would be appropriate uh, to reflect on the resurrection. So if you have a Bible... <clears throat> Bear with me this day. We're going to read John 11, 1 to 46. So without wasting time, I'm going to go straight into the text. You can follow in your own Bible. This is what the Word of God reads. <clears throat> John 11, 1 to 46. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judah again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go, so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of his literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. So you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found out he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into this world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus was not yet, uh, had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and, and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man off? also from dying. So Jesus said, Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the sea, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, 
bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, or them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Amen. This is the word of God. Long text today. I understand. Uh, it was You have to bear with me there. But it's critical that you keep your Bibles open to that text as we go through this passage. I'm sure it's a story, a narrative that many who've grown up in the church have heard before. And even if you haven't, you've heard of some reference to Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the grave. To some degree, if you've kind of been around Christian circles, today's sermon is entitled, Death Will Not Have the Last Word. Uh, I've preached on this text before. I've made some modifications in light of Easter and in light of a couple things I want to emphasize. Uh, so uh, if you've heard a sermon on this text before, maybe this will just be a good reminder for the rest of us, a wonderful truth to learn this day. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we go into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the text you've given us through the Apostle John as he's penned for us a wonderful narrative and a record of this event so critical for our understanding of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies to come. We ask for enlightenment and truth and revelation that will truly convict our hearts. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so as you know, there are seven miracles, seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. If you didn't know that, now you know. Okay, so there are seven miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John and seven I am statements. The Gospel of John is the one particular gospel in among the four that does not record any parable spoken by Jesus. So he never uses parables in the Gospel of John. This is one of the reasons why we recommend the Gospel of John for uh, newcomers to the faith or people who don't know uh, or do not believe, right, and are just kind of curious. The Gospel of John is very, very friendly to such people because, well, it was written for, the, for that purpose, because it omits the parables. It, it focuses on who Jesus is, seven I am statements that Jesus made, and seven miracles that he performed that support those I am statements. The fifth of these I am statements appears today, or here today in today's text, right, in John 11. Uh, we see here, what we see here on the surface level is a problem and a solution. The problem is great. The problem is Lazarus is death. Someone has died. But the solution is even greater. His revival. I remember reading this statement on Twitter one time. How many people are resurrected in the Bible? And of course the comment section went off. And the answer is just one. Jesus. The others that are revived back into their... The other ones are, that are revived, like Lazarus and the man who Paul, uh, Paul revives... These, and of course, we see in the Old Testament a revival as well. These revivals are just a revival back into their sinful states, back into their original sinful form. Like Lazarus doesn't come out of the grave, take off the wrappings, and he's like a glorified Lazarus, right? Like he's like fully sanctified. He's still sinful. He's just returned back into his initial form when he passed away. But only Jesus returns from the grave in glorified bodily form. Now, of course, you're going to think, is this heresy? Are you saying Jesus wasn't glorified before? That's not what we're saying. His body, his man, the, the, the truly man component of Jesus' nature uh, on earth resurrects in a glorified form. Now, he was already right, holy, without sin, fully sanctified, but his body came into that fruition as well. I would still describe the other instances of revivals in scriptures as resurrections, but only a resurrection back into life, like the body coming back to life. But the author of that tweet had me thinking about this, how I view the word resurrection. And the Greek word for resurrection is the word, and you might have heard this before, anastasis, meaning stand up, rise up, resurrect. And in John 6, this word defined, is defined for us as a promise of our own future as believers. So one commentator writes on this, Christ's physical resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. It's a bold claim. Which also guarantees the future resurrection of all believers. The foundation of Christianity is Christ's physical resurrection and that is the symbol which guarantees 
the future of your own resurrection. That's a very strong statement coming from this commentator. So with this in mind, we look to this miracle of, of Lazarus being resurrected or revived, if you will, as what? As a pointer to Christ's own death and resurrection to come, at least at the moment of this event, and as an even further pointer towards what? It's a pointer to our own resurrection, our own standing up, our own revival from the grave by the power of Christ, His resurrection, His work in us, our union with Him, allowing our bodies, our sinful states. You know how Paul pits spirit versus flesh, spirit versus flesh? When we're glorified, there is no spirit versus flesh. It's spirit and flesh working for holiness and being holy in unison. There's no competition anymore in glorification. Let's look at the text quickly, as quickly as possible. As you know me, I like to give you a lot of information, so bear with me here. I'm going to go a little quicker because there's a lot to do, a lot to cover. Uh, so if you have questions at the end, like we can definitely discuss it. But let's look at section by section. Verses 1 to 4 describe all things are for the glory of God. That is the overarching sort of header of this text, and you can't lose sight of it. Christ gives it to you himself in red text in some of your Bibles, right? Everything will be done for the glory of God. The story is set in Bethany where Mary and her family reside. Mary is the woman who poured the alabaster jar, if you remember, on Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. But it is her brother who is revealed to be sick. In fact, it is apparent very clearly that he is terminally ill. They, the sisters Mary and Martha, send messengers to inform Jesus of Lazarus' illness, indicating two things. They knew Jesus could heal him. They believed that, even just at his word. And we've seen Jesus do this before. Remember the centurion and his servant. He heals him at just his word. And they expected him to heal him. So there's two things there that they're, they're, they believe. Jesus can heal him. Jesus will heal him. This is where the story takes a turn. Because all they have known about Jesus and in their relation to him told them, in their hearts and in their minds, that Jesus would either come quickly at haste to heal their brother, or Jesus would heal him simply at his word. In either case, they must have assumed and expected that their brother would be healed. Jesus' initial response is positive, and it is quite encouraging to the messengers, and of course to Mary and Martha, that the sickness, look what he says, he says, the sickness will not end in death. The sickness will not end in death. And that the sickness itself will serve the purpose and function of what? What we're talking about. The glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. But brothers and sisters, us knowing the story, having read the entirety of it, we know the sickness does result in death. It does include death. See, Jesus didn't say, there will be no death as a result of this sickness. Listen to his words carefully. It will not end in death, are his words. But so many times in our lives, right? This is the problem of the prosperity gospel, right? Believe in Jesus, get good things. Do good things, get blessed. God will bless me because he's a good God. He's a good God, so I must only have good things happen to me. Jesus' promise in your life and God's promise in your life through Scripture is not the omission of suffering, but the glory of God despite suffering. But here's the great victorious promise. It will not end in death. If you believe in me, and that's the message of the Gospel of John, if you believe in Christ, you will have eternal life. You will not end in death. Our relation to Christ and our knowledge of his love for us does not omit us from the ramifications of a fallen world, especially in our fleshly sinful states. As we continue to endure the punishment of sin in our lives, in our temporary state, there's a curse upon us. We talked about this on Good Friday. The love of Christ is thus not a shield against all evil and all harm in the life we live. It is an understanding of that suffering, an understanding of that harm and that evil and that bad that we ex experience on a daily basis. And we endure it and we persevere through it. It is our faith in Christ that gives us the strength for endurance and perseverance. 
When we come to know Christ and his love, we come to know at the same time our sin and the reason for our pain. Ultimately, there is meaning thus thrusted and meaning given to everything in life. And I don't say this to diminish any pain or suffering you endure. If you've lost a loved one, if you've experienced great catastrophe in your life and travesty, I'm sure the Ukrainians right now are having a little bit of a hard time trusting in the Lord on a daily basis. But the Bible gives you meaning to those things. That it's not meaningless pain. It's not meaningless harm. It is all for the glory of God. Calvin, of course, famously writes in the Institutes, the universe is the theater of God's glory. Verses 5 to 10, Jesus tells us, walk in the light. Now, if you know how John starts, like the first, uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, right? It talks about light, there's darkness, and he is the light that came into the darkness, into the darkness of the world, right? Um, that's the language of the Gospel of John. This is a really important imagery found in the Gospel of John. There's two really big images in, in this Gospel. One is like this light darkness motif and the water motif. And I've kind of explained that with the Samaritan woman at the well uh, sermon before. But those are two really important images that we find in the Gospel of John. And here Jesus reminds us, what began with a positive response of encouragement, will not end in death, leads to a response of delay from Jesus. Who, did, who knew Jesus was a procrastinator, right? You might ask, why would Jesus wait two days to depart instead of departing right away? If you heard your family member or someone you loved was about to die and you could do something about it, would you not like go there immediately? There's no immediacy to Jesus' action here. This seems counterproductive considering this, that Lazarus was in need of immediate care and waiting two days would only result in his death. Death that Jesus said would not be the end. And death was exactly the thing Jesus himself said would not result from the sickness. What the listeners and participants of this narrative could fail to grasp if not reading carefully, and indeed it seems the disciples did misunderstand Jesus, is that Jesus made a promise of the sickness not ending in death. He never mentioned anything about the death being completely avoided. Again, our tendency is to look to Christ as a means to a better life now, not a best life later. That is a major theological fail on our end. Jesus, after two days, and we'll discuss this why he did this later, commences on his journey to Bethany and Judah, where a Jewish crowd had previously, in the previous chapter, sought to seize and kill him. So he's going back into a territory where it's hostile. There are a few themes that come out in this section of the text and the running theme of light and darkness in the fourth gospel, the theme of the Father's timing. So if you have water, light and darkness, the third thing in the gospel of John is God's timing. And so you hear that in the language um, of the hour has not yet come. Remember the first miracle of Jesus is the water turning into wine? He uses that language all the time. He says, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Finally, when the hour does come, he says, the hour has come, <laughs> right? So that language is present there. Light and darkness. The opening chapter of John, of course, as I mentioned earlier, talks about the entrance of the light, that being Jesus, into the world. The world would not recognize the light, but the light would shine in the darkness. The contrast of light versus darkness runs rampant throughout this gospel, and it points us, the readers and listeners, to the light that is Christ. What about God's timing, the Father's timing? This theme also runs all throughout the gospel from the very outset of, this, of, the, of the penmanship of this gospel. In his first miracle in Cana, as I mentioned earlier, turns water into wine, and then you have the language of, my hour has not yet come. Speaking, of course, that hour being the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Both themes come forth prominently in Jesus' response to his disciples' question of why is he going back to where he was being sought to be killed. Why are you going back there? There are two levels to his answer, to Jesus' answer. One, he is safe as long as he is in line with the Father's will and timing. He knows how his death will happen. There's nothing to fear. And we've already seen this kind of happen before in this gospel. Point number two, the disciples are safe as long as they walk in the light. Two things. Jesus is safe because of God's timing 
and the disciples are safe because of Jesus. What a like very simplified microcosm of the Christian life, right? As long as we are walking with Jesus and we're seeking to do the work of the Lord, there will be a time when night will come or when the light ceases. And in that hour, this work will be impossible. So while the light is with them, the disciples, they are to follow it, right? Verses 11 to 17, fear not death. Jesus indicates to disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep, meaning that he had already died. But they take his words to mean that Lazarus has literally fallen asleep. An honest mistake on their end. Jesus then says it plainly in verse 14. He is in fact dead. By the time of Jesus' arrival to the scene, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Four days. Jesus deliberately waited to bring Lazarus back from the dead until he had been in the tomb four days. He did this deliberately. Uh, Lightfoot quotes a remarkable tradition of Ben Kafra. Ben Kafra meaning like, um, like how they would handle like dead bodies. Grief reaches its height on the third day for the Jews. For three days, the spirit hovers about the tomb. If per, if perchance it may return to the body. But when it sees the fashion of the countenance changed, it retires and abandons the body. This is just fancy ways of saying this. The Jews believed that you had three days for the body to potentially come back to life, right? Because they didn't have like modern medical science to have like that little heart monitor. So for three days, spirit hovers and there might be a potential of life returning. So Jesus had came back within those three days and said, come out of the grave. Some of these skeptics would have just said, well, I mean, he has three days. What does it matter, right? You had three days to figure this out. Like, it's okay. Like, that's normal. We have, we've seen this before. What makes this miracle extraordinary to the Jews is that he waited four days. Because now, to the Jew, he is as dead as dead could be. What we can conclude is this. Jesus knew that Lazarus had already passed by the time the news of his sickness had come to him. He still stated that this sickness would not end in death and that it was meant for God's glory. So his delay in departure is not equatable to a cause in death, but rather a, an intended purposeful action that was intended for a specific reason, namely to resurrect him from the grave. Furthermore, it is here that the groundwork of his emphatic statement that Jesus himself is the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. That's how he will make this statement with this backdrop of Lazarus' resurrection. Note that he says he alone will go and wake him up from sleep. This work, listen carefully, this work of giving life to the dead can and only, will only be accomplished by Jesus in your life. The deadness of your life can only be resolved by Jesus and his work in you. Not only did Jesus wait two days before departing, the journey itself to Bethany takes two days to travel, which fits with the Gospel's account that Lazarus had been dead for four days upon his arrival. But it is this death, although seemingly the opposite result of what Jesus had proclaimed, that will set up the canvas for the miracle to follow. Brothers and sisters, we are far too quick to judge the work of God based on immediate analysis of the reality we view now. Rather than faith in a promised result and victory by the words of his mouth, fear not death, for all things have meaning and purpose under the sovereignty of God. That's not how we operate. We operate with this. Why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? Why isn't this good in my life? Why isn't this resolved? Why don't I have all of these things figured out? God, are you even there? Thomas, Jesus' disciple, is known for doubting, of course. He's known as Doubting Thomas. After Jesus' own resurrection later, he will doubt. But I like to give him a shout-out here, because I think he deserves a shout-out. He demonstrates courageous faith in leading disciples to follow Jesus, even unto death. He says, let's go, even to our own death. He may not, not, he may not have known what he was saying, but his words put into practice the teaching of Christ, to take up your cross and follow him. Words that will ring throughout the chambers of church history, from martyr to martyr to martyr. And then this 
this next section, he who believes shall live. This is sort of the gospel presentation of this text, verses 18 to 29. From the outset, Jesus has repeated that all of these things happening are being done for seemingly two separate yet interconnected purposes for God's glory and for the belief of those who are there. Jesus arrives and is approached by Martha and a short but dense conversation ensues between them. Martha may appear to be expressing complaint in that Jesus should have come earlier, but should be read as a statement of faith that his presence would have secured her brother's healing. But there is no indication of rebuke here. She is grateful to have Jesus with her in this time of grief, an attitude we fail to take many times. I like Martha's posture here. She's not going, why didn't you come earlier? You could have saved him. That's not her complaint. I'm grateful you are even here. That should be our posture, right? Your brother shall rise again, he says. These words are both words of promise towards a future event and words of promise of the current reality. Martha takes them at face value as words pointing to her eschatological, so belief in the future, belief in a bodily resurrection of all believers. So that's what we're learning about Martha here. She believes that there's a future bodily resurrection. That, that's what she thinks Jesus is talking about, eventual resurrection. But she's missing the point. Jesus is talking about right now and later. He says this, I am. Here's where the conversation takes a huge turn and an invitation is made to express one's faith in the truth that Jesus will now lay out for you. And so if you're sitting here and you're doubtful of this faith, if you're unsure of the, of the Christian uh, claim to truth and the Christian claim, the gospel's claim, listen carefully. His fifth ego eimi, I am statement, is that he is both the resurrection and the life. Now some will read these two things as the same thing. To resurrect, after all, means to be alive again. But the better, and I think the correct reading, is to read it this way, as two separate statements that are complementary of the same reality. The resurrection part is plain, as Martha points out. There is a promise of physical resurrection for all into glory on the last day of judgment. The key is to read the latter part of this statement. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And so he says, I am also the life. The key to understanding this part is to read verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This seems to indicate a fortitude against death, an avoidance of physical death, if you will. But how can re one resurrect if one never dies? Contradictory or complementary? The latter, obviously, as what Jesus is saying here is this, that he is the means to life both now and forever. The words here are important. Everyone who lives, not physical life, for that would be too elementary of a statement, but rather those who have eternal life, those who believe, those that have e internal change or regeneration as a result of God's work in them, and also believe. They adopt a position of faith from God. Only they can never die. In other words, in the life of a believer, there is a current and immediate reality of eternal life promised and a life after death through resurrection that is also promised. Death will not have the last word in the life of any believer. It does not now and it will not ever. That is what he means there, that you have in Christ the resurrection and life. I love the martyrs and their proclamation in the first, second, and third century of Christianity. For they viewed death in this way, in unison. Death is a doorway to life. What are the apostles' words? To die is gain. Can any of you proclaim that? I'm not asking you to run to death. But when death is at your doorstep, is there fear? Or is there faith? Jesus then shows his true humanity. In the shortest verse in all of the New Testament, Jesus wept. Mary comes to Jesus weeping. Mourners follow and he's taken to the tomb where Lazarus laid. He draws your I draw your attention to verse 33 where Jesus sees the weeping of those present 
he is deeply moved in spirit and trouble. You know how you know why this consoles me? Maybe sometimes he looks at me, my life, and the crappiness of my life. And maybe in his intercession, there is weeping from the Lamb of God. The accurate understanding of the word troubled, wept, is actually to be, in this text, angered. He's weeping out of anger. He's not weeping out of, oh, I feel bad for these guys. And so when I said when he's interceding for me and weeping for me, this is what I hope he's weeping for. Here's D.A. Carson. The verb wept, dakryo, is different, verse 37, from that describing the weeping of Mary and the Jews. They're weeping because they're sorrowful. It means this, to shed tears, but usually in lament before calamity. It is unreasonable to think that Jesus' tears were shed for Lazarus, since he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Why would he weep? Rather, the same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompted his outrage, also generates his grief. Woe to Sodom! Woe to Gomorrah! Woe to these cities who have sinned. I hope and pray as he intercedes for me that he weeps over the sin I commit every day. Those who follow Jesus as disciples today do well to learn the same tension that grief and compassion without outrage against sin reduce simply to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance. We need both. We need to be compassionate and weep over those who are less fortunate. But we must also be outraged at the sin of this world. Jesus wept at a fallen world full of fallen attitudes and fallen beliefs. Let us weep with him in this to grieve the unbelief of our peers and to be outraged at the ungodliness around us. Finally, that all may believe. This is the climax of John's gospel and the climax of today's text. There is something remarkable here beyond the resurrection of Lazarus into mortal life. But the prayer of Jesus. I'd like to focus on that for this part of our study. His prayer indicates this, that he had already prayed for Lazarus's resurrection, that the resurrection had already been done in a sense, and that the purpose of the miracle and prayer was not so much to just bring one man to life, but to bring all of them to life that day. Right? We focus so much on Lazarus walking out of that grave. What's more extraordinary is if any of those who were there to witness that event came to believe and have eternal life that day. That is the real resurrection of that miracle. One day, Jesus' own death and resurrection will be the grounds for faith in all believers. And on this day, a precursor to that event occurs, bringing about faith in those who see and understand the power of Christ and will believe in Him. So you have Lazarus' resurrection and then His own death and resurrection, precursoring our own death and resurrection. Jesus' prayer is not that Lazarus may be given life, but rather it is a prayer of thanksgiving. As Jesus prayed many times before, he gives thanks to God, his Father, for life already promised, already given. This prayer teaches us the intimacy of the relationship between the Son and the Father and the reality that the two do nothing apart from one another. They are in total accordance. This public demonstration of the relationship is a lesson to listeners that Jesus and the Father are indeed one. And as we have been told, no one comes to Father but through Him. I'll conclude with this today. It is quite remarkable that the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, omitted this miracle from their accounts. Isn't that crazy? If you, if you were Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you heard about the Lazarus resurrection. Like, wasn't that like something you would definitely include in the record of your gospel? But they don't. So many suggestions have been laid as to why they may have chosen to do this. Grotius makes the wise comment that the synoptic gospels were written during the resurrected Lazarus's life. Because <laughs> they were written way before John in just the immediacy of Jesus's 
ascension into heaven. So here's the crazy part. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't need to write it. They just go, that guy resurrected from the grave. He's right there living in Bethany. Go visit him. You can see for yourself. They had no need. And thus the mention of the miracle could have been caused, could have caused his second death at the hands of who? Those who did not want this story of Christ to be known. Regardless, the seventh sign or miracle of John's gospel. So remember I told you the seven miracles, the seven I am statements. This is the seventh miracle. Is the perhaps most unique and interesting of them all. No other miracle, although all great, can in some sense compare to the spectacular nature of this one. And even the spectacular meaning of this one. The resurrection of Lazarus pointing to the resurrection of Christ, pointing to the resurrection of all of us. I believe that this miracle teaches us two, among many other key lessons, that in Jesus we are promised a future bodily resurrection into a glorified, that means fully holy, form and state. And that in Jesus and in our faith in him alone can we find and have eternal life as of now. It is thus a statement of a promised reality to be and a promise of reality now. We are both living now and will be made alive later forever in him. Brothers and sisters, does this make sense to you? Do you see this truth? Jesus alone can offer such a gift. And brothers and sisters, my heed to you today is that you will see and understand Christ in this manner. Like Lazarus, who was raised from the grave, so too will we be raised and made alive in Christ one day. I hope to see you all there. Let's reflect and pray on what we've learned.
nourishment to our souls, our minds and our hearts this day as we remember the resurrected Christ and what that resurrection means for us in our expectation in the coming Christ, in the second coming, that we can hope for and we can look forward to a resurrected, our own selves, that our bodies would be finally glorified, that we can be with you forever and enjoy you forever. We thank you, pray all this in your name. Amen. What a beautiful song to sing on Resurrection Sunday. I want to welcome all of you. I want to conclude with some announcements, and then I'm sure some of you are hungry, so we'll get to the food. Uh, but thank you for being with us. Uh, if it's your first time here, welcome, and hopefully we get to get your name and you know just interact a little bit uh, during our fellowship. And those of you online, welcome, and thank you for being with, with us as well. Our offerings can be sent uh, via e-transfer, that's your comfort zone, uh, to sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com. So you can give your offerings that way. Uh, if you're giving towards Asia Minor, our mission projects, then please make sure uh, to note that in the notes section in your e-transfer, like to give this portion towards uh, our mission support. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we're supporting two groups of missionaries. So one is abroad in Asia Minor, and the second is local missionaries. We're supporting all of the KC staff, like the Kingdom Come staff. And so our church is kind of <laughs> like... Uh, has been doing that for a while and we'd like to continue to do that uh, through your gracious giving Um, we also have an offering basket in the back if that's your preference Um, all of our recordings can be found online via YouTube like video or any podcast platform honestly you can find our recordings and re-listen to or re-reflect on some of the things we're learning in church together now on that note uh, one of the things we do record is our Bible study and so next Sunday we will be starting the infamous and the famous Confessing the Faith by Chad Van Dixhorn, uh, a wonderful commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, I have been studying the Confession of Faith for the last, and some people ask me, like, why didn't we learn this before? Why don't you teach us this before? I'm like, calm down. First of all, like, I need to learn it first, right? And I need to learn it properly, right? Um, And so I've been actually studying the Confessions for the last two, two and a half years, like I would say just right before covid uh, I've been studying my st- or studying on that and taking lots of notes. And so for your benefit that I could teach it well to you when the time comes, uh, I am, I think I'm ready to start teaching this to you. I better be ready. I'm going to start next week. So uh, next week we'll do an introductory. So you still have about two weeks to try and get this book in your hands. It's about 30, 35 bucks on Amazon. If you don't have Prime, just let us know. We can get it for you. Um, maybe I'll do like a giveaway. Is that a thing? Do churches do that? It's like a YouTube channel thing, right? If we get to 100 members in our congregation, I'll do a book giveaway, um, Confessing the Faith. But, sorry? These weird commentaries always come from this side of the room. Um, so, uh, Conf- Confessing the Faith by Chad Van Dixworm. Pick this up if you can. And again, let us know. If you don't have Prime, we'll get it for you. Uh, it's a wonderful book to have. Now, if you don't get the book and you just want to attend Bible study and just listen in, that's fine too. You'll just be a little bit lost sometimes, but it's a good reference to have and, and a good opportunity to take notes as we go. I will do my best to do justice to the confessions, uh, but of course, I would recommend many, many other supplementary materials that will help you understand and comprehend the truth a little bit deeper. Um, So we'll get there when we get there next Sunday. So today, there is no Bible study. You're free after this. You eat lunch, and you can spend Easter any way you wish, Um, and hopefully that is Christ-centered reflection. Uh, Men's and women's group, we have them every month. I think they're upcoming, so in about two weeks, we'll probably have our men's and women's group uh, and if you'd like to join us, please just ask any one of us, and we'd love to plug you in. Christina leads the women's group. On our end, John and Hyuni kind of organize everything so you can talk to them. Uh, we have softball coming up. So on Victoria Day weekend, uh, our softball team is, we're registered, we're in. There's about 22 teams, and uh, we'll be have fellowshipping, right? Purpose of softball is not so much to, you know, just, you know, dominate and, like, destroy other teams, but the purpose is for fellowship. 
mainly for our own internal fellowship. I think there's like since we've come together pre-COVID, like we haven't really done anything together as a group. This is one opportunity to do that. So um, instead of focusing so much on the competitive side of this, although that's important, uh, I would like for our members uh, to focus more so on our internal fellowship as a church, getting to know each other, building community, building friendships and relationships. So softball, uh, Corey is kind of like our unofficial leader guy so you can talk to him but yeah he's doing the jersey thing too so today he'll probably walk around and bother you uh about jersey names and numbers and sizes and all that stuff so please uh refer to him for those things and uh offering prayer next week is actually our softball leader guy uh so Corey, if you could do the offering prayer next week that'd be wonderful let's rise from our seats and end with the lord's prayer uh and then i'm gonna pray for the meal here as well and we'll head over Maybe we'll divide like among the rooms because there's a lot of people and eat together and we'll need some helping hands. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me also pray for the meal. God, we thank you for the food today. Thank you for the Korean moms and dads and parents and adults who love to feed us for some reason. We thank you for their hospitality. We thank you for their service. I know sometimes we can be a little ungrateful. I know sometimes we don't, we'll, you know, be nice if we contribute sometimes too. Uh, so give us a heart to do that. But thank you for the wonderful, wonderful food we have today and the time we have together to spend in fellowship. Bless us this time uh, in our speech and in our conversation thank you pray all this in your name amen on that note get some guys set up tables here some people to helping hands on the other side to distribute food it's kind of buffet style so grab a plate grab some rice grab some food we're good to go